Uh, actually, I thought I'd just start by asking, uh, how do you like the book so far? Anybody have any? Well, seriously, a book's a book. You're not going to hurt my feelings if you complain about it. Well, unless I wrote it, which I did not. So anybody have any, like, something that really stands out that you want to comment on? If you don't, that's okay. But if you do, Will, are you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been nice getting to read more about some of the figures that he is okay. using to I, I didn't know much about Descartes and Rousseau, so it was helpful. So you'd like to know more about Descartes? <laughs> I mean, only so much. <laughs> I have a short video clip, which I still haven't decided if I'm going to... It is a cartoon. I was told there would be no math. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I once took an astronomy course in which I assumed there was going to be no math, and boy, was I wrong. Uh, there is no math, except in the more metaphorical way you do the math. Uh, anybody else? Um, like Will mentioned, this is where this is a chapter he starts going through the, the uh, history of ideas. He starts with Descartes, Rousseau, various romantics. Although he'll, he'll mention many by name, uh, but then he'll say basically this was the core of romanticist views, uh, and then it'll be Nietzsche, Marx. Or is it Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, and then a fellow by the name of Wilhelm Reich. And one thing I want you to notice that, that Truman mentions is that some of these ideas seem rather obscure. And is he serious that these influence our culture today? And yes, he is, because they filter down through the original thinkers to the second-tier thinkers, and the hangers-on, then the wannabes, then the posers, and before you know it, it's in popular culture. Um, so this is, and unlike Sunday morning, which you must remain quiet until I'm finished, uh, if you have a question or a comment on anything on this, because I'm commenting on the book. It's not my book, so you can comment on it too. So if you like disagree with that, and, and want to add something, go right ahead. Although I, I will be teacherly in one thing, and just raise your hand so we don't all talk at once. Um, so the major premise I take from chapter two is, uh, Truman says, a key cause of the recent radical changes in our society and social imaginary is the granting of decisive authority to inner feelings. Those are his words. Uh, this authorization has its roots in the philosophies of Descartes, Rousseau, and the Romanticists. And this authorization of feelings, I, I don't know if that's, if, if Truman came up with that phrase, but it's a really apt phrase. We have authorized our feelings to tell us the truth. Um, the, the next thing I'm going to do, though, th this authorization of feelings was contingent on believing that men and women are naturally good. Uh, that, in turn, was contingent on rejecting the Christian doctrines that all human beings are corrupted and sinful because of original sin brought about by the fall of man from original innocence and goodness. And I can't really call this a Bible study. It's like an exposition with a few biblical references, which I'm not going to read. Um, I'll, I'll refer to them but this is really a summary of biblical doctrine, more, more than a Bible study. Um, 
So all of creation, according to the biblical worldview, including humankind, was created in a state of original goodness and perfection. In Genesis 1.31, Genesis pronounced, and everything was very good. In the Hebrew, that's tov tov. They didn't have superlatives. They just repeated the word. Uh, however, Adam and Eve, through their disobedience, which is recounted in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, the serpent tempted Eve, sought to displace God. They themselves wanted to be God. Satan said, you will be like God, which is ironic because they already were. Um, but they wanted to decide for themselves what was right and wrong, what was best for themselves. They wanted to be God. And they brought on themselves and all humanity corruption and death. If you have any questions again about this, just feel free to ask. So this event in history is called the fall. And, and I think it is an event in history. It's called the historical fall. Not denying there's symbolism and metaphor and literary devices in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, whether we're supposed to really believe a snake talk, I'm not saying we're not. Or this is a symbolism for Satan, which it's either a symbol or a representative. Anyway, the subsequent corrupted nature of Adam and Eve and all their posterity is called original sin. And there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding of what original sin is. It, let me say this, and I don't want to start a big doctrinal hullabaloo right now, but it's not like simply a taint that can be washed away through baptism. That's, that's not what it is. It is, it, is, it is more a change of state Exactly how it's passed down from generation to generation is not explicitly stated in Scripture. But I'm not sure who said it, but someone once said, the doctrine of sin is the one Christian doctrine that is empirically proved, which it certainly is. Uh, anybody with any introspection whatsoever, or they should, does or should have an understanding that we're all sinners. And all you have to do is look at the world. So sin in the sense of original sin is not just a transgression of the law or, a, or an act of wickedness. It's a state of hostility toward God. Now I know perhaps in your life you have never thought of yourself as being enemy of God or hostile to God. Indifference, though, is a form of hostility. And Paul says explicitly in Romans chapter 5, when we were yet enemies of God. And in 8, 7, 8, he says the sinful nature is hostile to God. And, and we are hostile. Um, we, we think of God as our enemy. In this state, we are all by nature objects of God's wrath. That's in the NIV, that's literal nature. We are objects of God's wrath. The, the actual word is children of wrath, which I like better. I don't know if the revised standard didn't look it up keeps that or not, but children of wrath is, I think, singularly apropos. So this state is universal. There are no exceptions. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, and of course, why else would we all need a Savior? Therefore, the human heart is corrupt and deceitful, as Jeremiah 17.9 says, that the heart is deceitful and wicked we seek to gratify our selfish and sinful desires. Uh, the heart is neither a source nor a reliable guide for goodness, truth, or beauty. Now, I share that because 
Truman notes that with respect to Rousseau, Rousseau that he denied original sin, but he doesn't really go into it because he's, he's not writing a theological treatise, so he can't do everything. But I thought it was important. Uh, many of the Romanticists did too. There were a few who did not. Uh, but one could say the core of Romanticist thought and philosophy was that there was no such thing as original sin. We we're all essentially good. Now, according to Rousseau, we could become corrupted, but we aren't made or born that way. We become that way through association. But I'll talk about that when I get to that. So again, Rousseau and, and all the other thought leaders of the day, most of the other thought leaders rejected those biblical teachings. So it's important to hold those in contrast with what Rousseau and the Romanticists, not Descartes, uh, Nietzsche, everybody after Descartes rejected this idea of a fall and original sin and an, uh, an inherent or natural corruption to the human heart. So Truman says that the transgender person sees this inward psychological conviction as the non-negotiable reality to which all realities must be made to conform. Now, he says that, but he hasn't quite gotten to, okay, why exactly is that way? But we are going to start with how can you actually even conceive of your feelings actually telling you the truth? And that starts with Descartes. Rene Descartes was a mathematician. Oh, wait a second. I had a note here I wanted to read. He traces the human, he traces this turn to inward psychological conviction in the history of Western thought and philosophy beginning with Descartes in the 17th century. So, um, Descartes was a devout Catholic. Um, he had some unorthodox, he had unorthodox for the time views, but not necessarily strongly unorthodox in the way we might think. Um, so, he was a devout Catholic. He was seeking a foundation for certain knowledge in the wake of the fragmentation of the institutional church at, in the wake of the fragmentation of the institutional church at the time of the Reformation. So uh, <clears throat> I'm not blaming the Reformation, Reformation some people do, for the, for the loss in stability to the foundation of knowledge in Western civilization. But as a matter of fact, uh, institutional authority was fragmented and who you could trust was up for grabs. So Descartes wanted to base his certainty on something else. Uh, somewhat paradoxically, he believed he achieved this certainty through what he called his method of doubt, systematic doubt of everything that could possibly be doubted. Um, and if it plays, or either I could play a five-minute Talking Heads animated video or I could get Michael Neal to explain Descartes' method of doubt. Which, which do you want to do? I'm, I'm going to go ahead and play this. I debated it because it's actually really close to what Descartes actually said. It's, it's paraphrased, but very close to his actual words. There are a few interjections of modern things like... Uh, virtual reality and whether God's a jerk or not. Uh, Descartes didn't think of God as a jerk. He said, could I, could I even think that? Not a jerk, but, but a trickster. Let's see if that'll play. There we go.
Now remember, my method was doubt, but its purpose was certainty. So, what can be doubted? Nearly everything. And that's what I doubted. I noticed, first, that my senses are unreliable. Taste, sight, smell, hearing, touch, they often let me down. So I doubted whether anything I believed about the world based on my senses is true. I doubted that the world outside my mind is the way it appears to be. Then I realized that the very nature and even the existence of the world outside my mind can be doubted. Think about it. It's easy to imagine ways the world outside the mind could be totally different from the way it appears to me to be. I could be in a virtual reality. I could be in a mad scientist's laboratory hooked up to wires and receiving information from a computer program. Maybe I don't even have a whole body, maybe I am just a brain in that laboratory. And worse, I could be just a mind, floating in space, without so much as a brain, dreaming of a world where I have a body. Or maybe God isn't a nice guy. Maybe God is a prankster enjoying a cruel joke at my expense. Or maybe instead of God there is a terrible demon with godlike powers deceiving me. And maybe all my perceptions of the world are the result of his trickery. Maybe I'm not even a mind floating in space. Maybe three-dimensional space is a sub-part of the illusion. Maybe I am just a mind without even a space to float around in. These scenarios are not probable, but they're possible. And so I had to doubt that the world was at all the way I perceived it to be, and even that it exists, I considered. Next, whether I might fall back on reason, surely to and to make four, no matter what, right? Right? Wrong. I realized I could doubt this too. Reason has failed me in the past, so maybe it is always unreliable. And worse, if God is a prankster, or if a malevolent omnipotent being wanted to deceive me into thinking that 2 plus 2 equals 17 billion, they could do it. They could even make it seem obvious to me, like 2 plus 2 equals 4 seems obvious to me now. So how do I know they haven't already deceived me in a similar way, and that my belief that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is not itself the result of their deception? Maybe 2 plus 2 is really 17 billion after all, but it was here. In the depths of my doubt, that light finally dawned on my mind. I finally found something I could be certain of. I exist in the Latin, cogito, ergo, soon, I think. Therefore, I am. I realized that, even if God were deceiving me about all of these things, God could not deceive me about one thing. I exist. For in order to be deceived, I have to exist. So I realized that this would be the new foundation of the house of knowledge. I insist. And I realized, also, the nature of this I that exists. The I that exists is a thinking thing, and nothing more. For it is the presence of thought that guarantees my knowledge of my existence. And it is only that presence because I could exist without everything else, as I had already imagined. Now, I wasted no time building a new house of knowledge on this foundation. I was relieved to quickly restore, on a solid foundation this time, my belief in a perfect God. For I noticed that, in my mind, there was a certain idea of God. And that idea was an idea of a perfect being. I also realized that, since I had an idea of a perfect being, and since everything that is caused by something must be caused by something at least as perfect as it is, and since I was not perfect, I could not be the cause of my own idea of a perfect being, and nor could anything else imperfect, 
the idea of a perfect being could only be caused by a perfect being, and thus, I had proven that a perfect being exists, and that perfect being is God, and it gets better. Since God is perfect, I was able it to gets better. my belief in the world outside my mind, the reliability of reason, and the reliability of my senses, as long as I used them properly, because I could see that I did not create myself. I knew that God had created me, and because God is a perfect being, and therefore is not a total jerk, and because I find in myself a powerful inclination to believe in the existence of a world outside my mind, along with the testimony of my senses and the testimony of reason, because of all this, I knew that God had created me with these instincts to believe, and with these faculties of reason and of the senses, and thus that they were genuine sources of knowledge. Thus what I had doubted could now be restored, and I had knowledge of a few things, and on so solid a foundation that I would be able to get knowledge of more things. There you go. If you find that fascinating and inherently clear, then perhaps you should get a degree in philosophy and you can spend an hour listening to that. Um, it actually is... Um, uh, I'm sure Michael found it perfectly clear. Some of you might, and it's okay if you didn't. Um, uh, the point is really this. Um, he was trying to establish a firm foundation for absolutely certain knowledge, especially the knowledge of God, and he believed he arrived at that by systematically eliminating everything that po could possibly be doubted, which is everything except I exist, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum. But you can add another cogito to that. Cogito ergo sum, cogito. I think, therefore I am, I think. Anyway, um, well, a quick story. So I, I never went a, a, over this with, with uh, seniors in high school, uh, even when I taught a philosophy class. But we did talk about uh, the impossibility of 100% certain knowledge in empiricism, the evidence of the senses, and I said, basically use the sun. I said, look, there's no guarantee that just because the sun has risen just like this for the past, you know, a few billion years, that it's going to rise tomorrow like that. You cannot know that empirically. There is a pro high probability, and then I would finish by saying, and the probability that it won't is so vanishingly small that you probably should go ahead and do your homework anyway. So <laughs> some of these epistemological problems. Uh, he mentions some, the talking head guy, uh, the brain and vat problem, the virtual reality problem, which watch the movie Matrix and you'll get the same thing in a more entertaining way. How do we know we're not all in a virtual reality? I don't know and, you know, frankly, I don't care. Um, but these questions like this can then filter down and, and influence people in certain ways that the, that the philosopher never intended. So it was not his intention to do what he did. He began with the subjectivity of the knower, unfortunately, and therefore placed the answer to how we know things on a foundation of personal introspection and examining our own mental states. Well, it's a short drift from that to clear and certain ideas, which is, or clear and distinct ideas, which Descartes thought about, to my feels. It, it's really not that, I mean, there is a long history behind that, but, but it's not that much of a leap. So it was not his intention to reduce knowledge to feeling, but his thought could be led in that direction, and it was. Not 
not just by us today, but by the, the philosophers that uh, Dr. Truman will go through. So, much as I fear what you might have to ask, I'll just ask, does anybody have any questions about that? That, that might be good. Um, Descartes, again, he was a Catholic, he was a Christian, um, and his thought wasn't intended to do what it did, and it wasn't necessarily his fault, but there's always, there, in philosophy, the law of unintended consequences applies, as does Murphy's law. If something can go wrong, it will go wrong, because humans are just so foolish. That's actually just my corollary. So Descartes establishing the psychological foundation for certainty set in place a conceptual framework that makes transgenderism plausible. And, and I hope you see that. So if you doubt everything except I exist and I think certain things and I can, I can question the reality of everything else, well, what is else is there to rely on if my feelings are so strong and they have been authorized, in Truman's <coughs> words, why shouldn't I believe my feelings are telling me the truth instead of, you know, what biology is telling me, the object of my senses of empirical science? And again, if you have any questions, raise your hand. So then, then we come to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, anybody get a degree in education? Because are they still teaching Rousseau? So I learned about him both in the College of Education and in the Department of Industrial Arts. Among other things, Rousseau uh, was one of the first who advocated manual arts or training students in how to, how to build things and fix things, basically. Uh, my first degree was in industrial arts education. So we learned about him. Uh, but he was, he was definitely a brilliant man, but a, a really quirky guy. And as far as the quirks are concerned, you can look those up and... Dr. Truman shares some of them. Uh, he was Genevan, French-Swiss philosopher, political and educational theorist, musician, musician writer, uh, and all-around man about town. So his influence on the modern idea of the self is focused in two ideas, Truman says, and I think he's correct. He locates identity in the inner psychological life of the individual. But in a certain way... Um, Augustine, in his Confessions, talks about his, his inner life and his feelings, but he contrasts them with what he thinks he should be feeling according to God's word. He does not authorize his own feelings. He just shares them. Um, and number two, uh, Rousseau sees society as exerting a corrupting influence on the individual to the extent that society prevents us from acting consistently with our feelings. To that extent, it... Oh, there should be a period. To that extent, it prevents us from being who we really are. And, and we, we talked about that. I remember the meme on one of the slides I showed a while ago, you know, be yourself, the world will adjust. Well, that didn't used to be true, not even, you know, a hundred years ago. So, although Rousseau was not an atheist, it's hard to say exactly what he was, but we'll call him a deist, and a believer in the importance of religion, he rejected the fall on original sin, like, like I just mentioned. Uh, man in the state of nature, <coughs> which is ill-defined, 
seems to be an historical stage uh, in human history, although it's, that true is not well-defined. The idea of the so-called noble savage, Rousseau didn't use the term, but it was applied to him later, the idea that man is innocent in his natural setting. Uh, men and women become corrupt and immoral by the influence of society and civilization. And, and the first time I even heard that, I said, well, how did society and civilization get corrupt in the first place if men and women are innocent? But Rousseau never answers that. Um, he just said, when we get together, we do bad things because we want self-esteem. We want people to think better of us. We want things that other people have, et cetera, et cetera. He has a really interesting thing to say about private property, which I'll read if I have any time. <clears throat> Um, even so, human beings are perfectible, though this is contingent on human choice and effort is not an assured outcome. In, in a political sense, which Truman doesn't go into and I won't go into it deep here, he's also the father of progressivism, the, the idea that man, uh, men and women can be perfected. So his, his view of the, excuse me, his view of the superiority of nature over civilization has also become part of the social imaginary. So when we go on vacations, well, sometimes you go to New York or um, some Paris or some other urban center, but a lot, you know, we go to the country or we go someplace away from it all. Um, we ourselves tend to think of living in the country and as being or being close to nature as more human and humane than urban life, and that that idea can be traced back to Rousseau. On economics, he sounds a lot like contemporary uh, BLM and Antifa Marxists. He wrote this in Discourse on Justice, I think. No, Discourse on Inequality. He said, the first man who having fenced in a piece of land said, this is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him that man was the tr that man was the true founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders from how many horrors and misfortune might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us and the earth itself to nobody. So, of course, Marx would take that idea and run with it. So, yes, Rousseau is the fount from which a lot of bad ideas in Western society come. Uh, he believed in the spirituality of nature. It was more a revelation than necessarily books or scripture. Uh, and his theory of education, this is, uh, I couldn't put it a better way myself, so I borrowed this from the internet. There's a professor at Southeastern uh, Louisiana University who says, Rousseau's theory of education emphasized the importance of expression to produce a well-balanced, free-thinking child. He believed that if children are allowed to develop naturally without constraints imposed on them by society, they will develop towards their fullest potential both educationally and morally. So this is, and this I learned in college, that Rousseau is, is, the, uh, is the founding father of what's so-called child-centered education. And there's another debate. A lot of modern debates about education are about the ideas of Rousseau and one of his admirers, John Dewey. 
so Rousseau's, here's, here's what Truman says is important for his purposes. Uh, Rousseau's focus on the inner psychological life of the individual life That is, that's what he said. Rousseau's focus on the inner psychological life or the individual life of the individual as taking us to the heart of who he is or she is represents a key development in Western culture, the significance of which still has a profound effect on how we think of our identities today. If that's unclear, then there's a typo. I think there is. But so his, his focus was on, on the inner psychological life of the individual as taking precedence over everything else. So in this way, he, he marks the beginning of what's been called the turn to the therapeutic. Um, and this has influenced not only culture, um, but the church. It's, it's become a way of understanding, expressing the meaning of Christianity. The therapeutic approach is self-focused spirituality. It is a form of expressive individualism, which has the primary aim of gaining inner peace and contentment through a psychologized approach to God and the gospel. This aim is accomplished by dealing with our feelings, the ideas of our objective guilt before God, our status as rebels against God, and our need for an objective atonement are de-emphasized. Um, I think I will mention this book. So has anybody ever heard of the book, of the book Jesus Calling? Um, just an incredibly popular book uh, amongst lots of evangelicals of every sort. I, I just... Uh, hate is probably a pretty strong word, but I hated it from the beginning because it really is this therapeutic turn. It's all about my feelings. Plus the presumption that Jesus said those words, which I found bordering on blasphemy. But this book was strongly influential because there was an audience prepared basically to accept a therapeutized form of Christianity. And I'm, I'm being not completely fair and a little oversimplifying to say most of what Jesus said to the woman who wrote it, who I forget, uh, was there, there, everything will be all right. Well, yeah, but there's a lot more to say about life than that. So I, I don't recommend... If you've read Jesus Calling and you find it meaningful, I'm sorry, I don't know why. Um, uh, forgive me if you want to argue later, but... One of her problems was that the one who wrote it is because she didn't find Scripture intimate enough. Well, I, I, that baffles me, frankly. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why I'm an Anglican is because the, the, the Book of Common Prayer wasn't, wasn't a uh, self-generated view of what Jesus might have said to you if, if your feels were hurt. It is based on Scripture itself, and as you know, simply from the liturgy in the morning um, and all the other uh, prayer services and everything else, it is steeped in Scripture. And that which isn't literally words of Scripture in the prayer book is based on ideas coming from Scripture. Um, all right, that's, that's my sermon. Um, so Romanticism, uh, Rousseau was also the father of Romanticism. Um, so and there are lots of exemplars 
I think that's a picture of uh, Lord Byron, Williams Wordsworth when he was a young man, Mary Shelley, who, you know, I'm going to confess here, there's a lot of romanticists writing in art that I actually really like. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a really good book. Um, not only because, you know, it's like one of the first science fiction books ever, it's because it, it borders on a clear and thoughtful, not, not humorous, but, but a ironic parody of some aspects of romanticism. Because in it you have the romantic hero genius, Victor Frankenstein, who believes he can do God one better, and of course he doesn't. He ends up not only destroying himself, but other people by his hubris. And so Mary Shelley seemed to be very attuned to some of the, to the more uh, extreme views of romanticism. And a lot of people, including myself, see it as a criticism of those, as well as a good read. Um, right, okay. So, and there are others. Uh, Beethoven was romanticist. Uh, but there are others, Liszt, Schubert, uh, Casper David, oh, that should be Friedrich, not Friedrich, Friedrich Theodor Jericho, uh, who painted a very famous painting called The Raft of the Medusa, Percy Shelley, uh, Percy was an atheist, got kicked out of, I forget whether it was Cambridge or Oxford, but one or the other, because he was an atheist. That won't get you kicked out now, that'll get you professorship. Um, <laughs> Oh, I'm not kidding. Uh, Dawkins, yeah, he might be retired, but Dawkins was a, he was an endowed professor at, at Oxford. So romanticism was a literary and artistic movement which emphasized personal feeling and trust in nature as inspiration and teacher of morality and proper human sensibilities. And again, that's become, we're analyzing the idea, but it's part of how we feel. You know, the idea of a, quote, Forest Cathedral. Does anybody even not have any idea of exactly what I'm talking about? We feel reverence. If you've ever been you know, out in the sequoias and the redwoods in, in California, I have, you know, and it's like, and if you don't start thinking of the speeder bike chase in Star Wars, then you'll start thinking about, you know, spiritual things. Um, although I admit it's hard not to think about the Speed, you know, no, well, if you're a Star Wars fan, you know what I'm talking about. But, but these ideas are just so much part of the background, we forget, well, everybody wasn't already always like that. Uh, at its heart, Truman says, Romanticism sought to find authentic humanity in an acknowledgement of and connection to the power of nature. Now, this isn't a bad thing as in itself, but again, remember, at best... Uh, at best, the best of the Romantics were attenuated theists. A lot of them were deists, and some of them were atheists. Uh, very few of them were Orthodox Christians. Uh, and I think, I mean, Orthodox, small o, Orthodox, but in a broad sense. The Romantics grant an authority to feelings to that inner psychological space, that, and there's another typo, that all humans possess. Um, and just, boy, this isn't a class on romanticism, so I'll give you one painting and one example <laughs> poem. This is, this is not my favorite romanticist painting, but it's one of the most famous, and it's considered 
like one of the, the, the strongest exemplars of Romanticism. This is Caspar David Friedrich's The Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog. And there are several Romanticist concepts and ideas. The idea of the sublime, the idea of the lone romantic genius, the encounter with nature, et cetera, et cetera. Nature is teacher. Um, I like the painting, but it's not my favorite. I'm not really crazy about this poem by Wordsworth. Um, I won't read the whole thing because I do want to end on time. But uh, the, the gist of his poem is this in many, many... I'll read the first verse. Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil of trouble? So if we were going to do what Wordsworth wanted us to do, we'd all just stop doing this and go frolic in the meadow over there. Uh, One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil, and of good than all the sages can, which is just sounds so great, and it's just wrong. Just, you know, there's a great... I remember I was talking about this in philosophy class, and we were talking about the transcendentalist. And I showed a YouTube picture of a lion uh, hunting down, attacking, killing, and then ripping apart the belly of a zebra. And I said, well, there's nature. What, what, what do we learn from that? And I cannot remember who said it. Michael, uh, nature, red in tooth and claw. Who said that? Was this, uh... Hobbes? Yeah, I think it was. Okay. Um, so, you know, at best, you get mixed messages from nature. So, again, not a class on romanticism, so we'll, we'll leave that at that. Rousseau and the romantics are important because they represent an impulse in the modern world that tends to see sophisticated society as corrupting, don't we? And to regard instinct or that inner voice of nature as possessing significant authority. Looking at Rousseau and the Romantics allows us to see the significance and the tacit assumptions of the culture in which we live. And to know the culture enough to not be unduly influenced by it. Um, Some cultural influences are good. um, Some are not. Um, Well, I'll just... I'm going to end there only a minute or two early, but... Before I bring up the discussion questions, most of which are just from, there's some from the book and some I added, and we can discuss any, all, or none of the above, whichever you choose. Does anybody have any general questions that pop to mind? David? So, a lot of this is reminding me of the caricature in my mind of natural theology. The idea of learning about God and learning about right and wrong from what we see around us and from what we can philosophize. But my understanding is that significantly predates people like Descartes and Rousseau and so forth. So are those, how closely linked are these ideas? Does one come from the, from another? Should we be concerned about natural theology, etc.? Well, where do I start? A brief synopsis of what he asked. Should we, right, a brief synopsis. What about natural theology? How does that relate to this, and should we be concerned about it? Well, natural th- theology 
it, it used to be actually a like a, a, a developed and well described circumscribed theological endeavor along with revealed theology was natural theology which studied nature and revealed theology which studied scriptures. I, I do not entirely dismiss natural theology and I base my view on that in, in Romans where Paul says among other things that there is enough, I'm paraphrasing, enough evidence in nature uh, that everyone should acknowledge and be uh, grateful and worship a God of glory. Um, and we don't, so we're accountable. The problem with natural theology, it's like the problem with everything else. It goes too far and it goes to places that it shouldn't go, but that's everything human. It says something about me. The first thing I think of is sex when I say that. Sex is a wonderful thing in its place in its proper framework, but it has this habit of, in the hands of humans, being taken where it isn't supposed to go and used in ways it isn't supposed to use. So what can we know of natural theology? Well, if you know that the universe is billions and billions of light years across and you know something about cosmology, paraphrase C.S. Lewis, it didn't tell me there was a God of glory, but it gave meaning to the word glory. And the, another phrase comes to mind, camera was Luther or Calvin, but the creation is the theater of God's glory. So um, I'm an advocate of so-called intelligent design, and every really good intelligent design theorist will tell you, you do not come up with the Christian God starting from intelligent design, but you can come up, if you believe William Lane Craig's approach to this, which, although apologetic, I would call it natural theology. He says you can come up with an uh, omnipotent, omniscient, infinite, personal, and good God simply from studying creation. Now, that's debatable. Uh, I mean, I happen to believe it, but what I'm saying is it's a thing worth discussing. On the other hand, um, you know, what we believe the gospel is about is historical realities. So that Jesus is our Savior and that he's the incarnation of God and that there is a trinity, you will never learn by studying nature. Um, at best, if you believe in nature, you'll be a deist or a transcendentalist if you don't take scripture seriously. Okay, well, uh, that's uh, Rousseau and the Romantics and a little bit of Descartes. And then next week, it's, isn't it Nietzsche?